Biblical patterns are set in place uh, so, that liter- so that worship doesn't become something of our own making. So that we don't worship God in the way that we see fit, but we worship in a way that is given to us. This fosters reverence and love for God. It doesn't feed our ego. It deepens our faith in Jesus Christ. So often uh, the, the liturgy has words that we couldn't come up with on our own, but we need to teach us to love Jesus better, to have more faith in him. It's also in continuity of practices of Israel and of the early church. It needs to be said, it needs to be repeated over and over again, that the ancient church uh, took something of that Jewish ethos of worship with it as it went forward. And much of that was structured patterns of worship, structured patterns of liturgical action. So the ancient church embodied this, the ancient church kept this up. Uh, This was uh, held by all Christians, um, really actually until rather recently, and uh, the the kind of uh, uh, phenomenon of unstructured, of course, the reality is that every church has a structured uh, pattern of liturgy, whether they have extemporaneous prayers or written prayers. Uh, Every church has a structured liturgy. Everybody basically knows what's going to happen. Uh, It's only in certain circles that you'll have no such thing as structure. But that in itself is a very recent phenomenon. Question 246. Does structured liturgy inhibit sincere and vibrant worship? No. A structured liturgy provides sincere worshipers biblical language and forms that train our hearts for worship. Liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. It's often concerned by many people coming into uh, churches where the, the liturgy is more structured than what they're used to. Uh, as I said, most churches have some form of structure, but they're worried, will, will worship lose its vibrance, maybe some of its spontaneity, uh, maybe uh, worse, some of its sincerity. We've, we, as, uh, as modern people, are very concerned with being sincere. Uh, we want everything to be meaningful. We want our words to mean something. We want uh, to believe what we say. We want to own it fully. We want it to be authentic. There's a gigantic thirst in the culture today for authenticity. And it's con- the concern is that structured liturgy will inhibit all of that. But here the Catechism answers this question by simply saying uh, that, that it actually provides sincere worshipers, biblical language, and forms that train our hearts for worship. I've used this analogy several times, but um, I'm growing tomatoes in my front planter gardens, and uh, and there were a couple tomatoes, they're still there actually, that, that didn't quite get up off the ground, and so they were down low, and they started to rot, they started to deform. And the reason was that they weren't trained upward. In other words, the tomato plant didn't know which way it was up and couldn't send those plants up, couldn't send the fruit up because it didn't know which way was up. The reality of it is that you and and I need help to know which way is up in worship. We need to know which way is right. And that word train is so important. Uh, Athletes train according to a standard. Um, uh, Employees train according to a manual. Um, all of us enter into ways in which we learn something that is foreign to us and therefore cannot be sincere. Our desires can be sincere for sure, but we do not know the right way to go. 
And so what a structured liturgy does is it says, you don't know, and that's okay. We will provide you with that language. We will provide you with those forms, and they are biblical forms. Um, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that in the next question, uh, but, but this last sentence is important. Liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. First, I want to break that down. Joyfully uh, worship. Structured liturgy provides this uh, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, if we were left to our own devices, uh, we would simply be, oh, what are we going to do today? What's it going to look like? What kind of things are we going to pray for? How will we do it? What will we do? Uh, and, and what we wind up, ironically, worshiping at the end of the day is our own sense of ingenuity, creativity, our understanding of God, which is so feeble. Liturgy provides us with a way to worship the God in whom we have believed and hoped without turning to a God of our own making. I use the lowercase g for God there. Without worshiping a God of our own mind or the God of our own creativity. We worship the God of Revelation. And that is the source of our joy. Every time that we worship something that is, um, that is inside of us or that we give uh, a credence to or, or value to that is something of our own making or something that we bought or something that we uh, 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 creatively came up with, there's a danger that it can become a kind of idol to us. It's, it's to worship the God that we have created. But we know as Christians that's not the case. We worship the God who created us. And so it only makes sense that there would be something that he gives us to show us how to worship. And that this in itself would be the cause of our joy because uh, uh, there is no joy in idols. There might be temporary happiness, but there is no joy. There's no joy that comes from God. Secondly, and this is important as well, uh, the liturgy teaches us or enables us to worship God with one voice, with a united voice. We as Anglicans speak a great deal about what we call common prayer. And that doesn't mean that it's sort of common as in ordinary, but in the sense that we pray things in common together. We pray the same prayers. I've traveled all throughout the Anglican communion. I've been to uh, Anglican churches in Rwanda and Kenya and, uh, and even in far-flung places in the Middle East and in South America. And, uh, and I will tell you that you can always enter into that world of common prayer throughout the world. We know what will happen. And it's not just common ge geographically, it's common throughout time. Uh, indeed, many of the prayers that we consider to be Anglican actually predate uh, anything following the Reformation. They are way in advance of that. So there are prayers in the daily office that have been prayed since even the 4th century. And some of them are biblical. They come straight out of Scripture. Um, so this enables us, and this is really the big point, this enables us to enter into a language for worship of God that is shared um, to which we can truly give an amen at the end of the day and say, yes, that's exactly what I believe. That's what I hold. That's what I pray to God. That's what I ask for. And therefore, we can consent to the mind of the church. We can consent to one another 
in the praying of this text. And that is what makes this liturgy corporate in the sense that it is the prayer of the body of Christ, not just a gathering of individuals, but one body. So let's move on. Question 247. What is the role of Scripture in the prayer book? The Book of Common Prayer is saturated with the Scriptures, organizing and orchestrating them for worship. It helps us to pray together in words God himself has given us, with order, beauty, joy, deep devotion, and great dignity. The Book of Common Prayer is the work of a wonderful, uh, well, some may say wonderful, but but uh, the point is, anyway, that uh, that... Archbishop Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century, right at the time of the English Reformation, uh, brought together various liturgical sources from the medieval tradition and also updated them, including some English translations of scripture, into one book that contained all of the authorized liturgies for the English church. And what happened was that the scriptures were thus organized and orchestrated uh, for uh, corporate worship. Now, these two words are really wonderful. They're really intentional. Uh, these, and I love when the Catechism has alliteration. Organizing and orchestrating. What do these two words mean? The first is to simply say that those texts are organized in such a way as to enable us to worship and to worship well. Uh, they are put in order. Um, and this is often uh, a problem when Christians are sitting around saying, well, what should we do today? What kind of things should we crack? What, you know, should we make up a liturgy today? It can be a mess. Uh, and the organization can, can in fact, uh, or what lack of organization there is, actually tells a story. It gives a message in itself. But Anglican liturgy is organized. So a great example would be, uh, in the liturgy, we begin by blessing the triune God. We continue on by remembering that, that God knows all of our thoughts, all of our hearts. And then we ask for mercy as we approach worship. We ask for, for God to pour forth his grace upon us. We pray, we pray of the gloria, we give glory to God. And then we, we, we offer a collect, a prayer that sort of gathers all the prayers together in a way that focuses us upon what we're about to hear from Scripture, in a way that asks God to build certain fruits in us from reading and meditating on God's Word in that way. And then we have readings which are drawn uh, from a lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer, and, uh, and they call us to several things at once, but, but most often repentance, to trust God, to have faith in God, to live as people with hope, to love one another, to love God. And then we, we turn to professing the faith, and then we pray for ourselves and for the world, and then we kneel in confession. What is happening in this organization is that the, pro the proclamation of Scripture is leading us to not only proclaim the gospel, um, and there's something very catechetical going on here. We, we proclaim the faith in the Nicene Creed. We pray in the prayers of the people. And then we exercise our sense of God's law, our understanding of God's law, to repent of our sins. And we pray prayers of confession before we go to the part of the Eucharist in which uh, the Lord's Prayer, in which the, the, uh, the Eucharist is celebrated properly. 
Um, all of this is to say that, that it's organized. You see what's going on there? It's organized. It's also orchestrated, and this is important as well, if you've been a part of a church that seemed to be really gung-ho about one kind of prayer, not so gung-ho about others, uh, a certain amount of orchestration is needed to balance the whole thing out. You may have uh, had a, a stereo system as a kid like I did that had little sliders on it, right? You had, you had balance and you had fade. Maybe that's hidden somewhere in the digital controls of your car stereo uh, and you can't figure it like, like me, you can't figure it out for the life of you. But, but it's stereo is balanced front and back, right and left, or at least it should be. And when it's out of balance, you hear too much from one speaker, not enough from another. You hear too much from the back and not enough from the front. And so you have to go in and balance it. And sometimes it takes someone who is really in tune with how audio works to be able to do this. And this was the case with, with Archbishop Cranmer. He had this ability to orchestrate the words of Scripture to be useful in public liturgy. And this helps us to pray together in words God himself has given us. Not words that we have given, but words that God himself has given. With order, meaning that everything is... Paul calls upon the church to, to do everything decently and in good order. To do so with beauty, meaning that, uh, that, that the worship of the church is not simply fitting, but that it overflows the categories of fittingness. That it is, that it is a worship that is, that is overabundantly proper. And this is the source of that joy and, and deep devotion. Um, if all the prayers we pray are just simply the prayers that we can come up with of our own accord as a group or as a body, then we're limited by maybe the highest common denominator in this sense. People are only drawn towards the one who perhaps has the best sense of prayer. But in the prayer book, we have this incredibly high standard for prayer. And this teaches us to pray in words that are beautiful, in words that overflow the category of fittingness and that have great order. It also allows us to worship with great dignity. Um, there's a kind of a joke that Anglicans will often share that uh, we observe the 11th commandment, which is thou shalt not be tacky. Um, I always, always love that. Uh, but, but the reality is there that um, it takes a sense of what is dignified uh, in order to do this. And so we enter into worship that is dignified using the prayer book. Question 248. How does the Book of Common Prayer organize corporate worship? The prayer book orders our daily, weekly, and seasonal prayer and worship. It also provides liturgies for significant events of life. The prayer book orders not just prayer on Sundays, but prayer throughout our lives. Uh, not only daily, but weekly. Uh, it organizes prayer by according to the church seasons, even according to seasons such as harvest time and, uh, and other things like that. Um, and then it provides liturgies for significant events, um, such as uh, my wife and I are expecting any day now. Uh, in fact, I have my phone in front of me so that if she calls and says, it's time, uh, we're expecting any day now a baby to be born, our seventh baby. And we're so excited about it. But I know that once we've gotten everything squared away and, and the baby's there and we're all doing it on I'm going to pull out my prayer book and I'm going to flip to the, the thanksgiving for the birth of a child prayers, which I've done so many times in hospital rooms and homes and even on Sunday mornings. And I'm going to pray those prayers. 
The reason that I do it is because if I was left to myself to pray those prayers, I would be a blibbering idiot because I get very emotional on days of, of, of my children's births. And I don't know what to say. I don't even know what to say in prayer. Our, our midwife, on the other hand, prays beautiful prayers when babies are born. Uh, but, but I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, and, and so I can simply open up the prayer book. And it's hard to get through, but it's there. And it's beautiful. And it's fitting. And it tells me what to pray. So if you ever have a baby, you can call me and I'll come do that for you. <laughs> but, but it's simply to say that uh, it provides liturgies for this. It provides liturgies for even adopting a child. It provides liturgies for things that are of, uh, of great significance, like marriage and burial, all of these things. We had a wedding here a few weeks ago, and, and every time we do a wedding out of prayer, people remark just how beautiful it was. And I'm reminded that it's the same service, whether you're a princess or someone who lives on welfare. We use the same liturgy for marriage because marriage is the same regardless of rich or poor. The liturgy is the same. Um, so, so this is a wonderful thing that we go into in, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, this next bit is three questions and answers on the daily office. Now, I have, uh, in past videos, uh, taught on the daily office and said a bit about how to pray morning prayer or evening prayer, and so you can look that up. Uh, but for now, we're just going to simply be descriptive. What is the daily office? The daily office includes the services of morning and evening prayer. In them, we confess our sins and receive absolution, hear God's word, and praise him with psalms and offer the church's thanksgivings and prayers. Anglicans uh, pray these two what we call offices. An office is not in the sense of a, of a place where you keep your desk. It's actually in the sense of a duty. Um, you may uh, think about someone holding the office of president. It means that that person holds the duties of the president according to the Constitution. The office is considered to be a duty of Christians um, and, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that. You may have never considered it your duty, uh, but, but many of us at Christ Church do, and many throughout the MP Union do. Uh, in fact, uh, to pray the daily office is part of the most basic and straightforward rule for Anglican life, uh, and that needs to be said. Um, but uh, in the earliest days uh, of the Book of Common Prayer, the, uh, and, and it has been ever since, the daily office is considered to be a duty, especially of the clergy, and it comes from the monastic tradition of praying, uh, in the Benedictine tradition in particular, seven times a day. Well, the problem with this is that that becomes very impractical, even for parish clergy, to do uh, seven times a day prayer. I mean, if I, I think if I prayed seven times a day, I, I'd, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to be as flexible as I need to be um, in the exercise of ministry. And so Thomas Kramer came up with a way to really solve this problem. Hey, you know what, just pray before you start work and pray at the end of work. Pray before you start your day, pray at the end of the day. Um, when you start entering the leisure, or before dinner, or something like that. And so we have morning and evening prayer. And in fact, it's really interesting to me always that morning prayer is the more complicated one. Evening prayer is easy. And there's a logic to that, too. You have more energy to do complicated things in the morning than you do in the evening. Or maybe, maybe you're not like that. But, but the reality of it is that, uh, that you can, it's doable, it's practical. So, um, in these offices, we confess our sins. That's the first thing in each office. We receive absolution. Then we hear God's word according to a lectionary that gives us uh, a way to read scripture in course, but not uh, starting in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, but a way to take 
bits out of each section of Scripture, out of the Old Testament, out of the New Testament epistles, and out of the Gospels each day in a way that is orchestrated uh, to a purpose. And, and we can read uh, through Scripture in this way um, without getting bogged down or losing our way or reading uh, five chapters of Leviticus in a day or uh, uh, something like that. Then we praise God uh, with the Psalms. We actually do that before the reading of Scripture. Uh, and the Psalms are a major part of the daily office, and the Psalms are to be prayed by the people together. And uh, then we offer the church's thanksgivings and prayers, and there's time for uh, extemporaneous prayer as well. But all of this works together so that families can pray together, according to a form, so that uh, married people can pray together, according to this form, so that uh, single people or you know, large gatherings of people can come together and pray. Um, during this time of COVID-19, um, people from our church have gathered every morning, five days a week, at 7.30 in the morning to pray morning prayer, and that's certainly available to you if you'd like to join up with that. But the daily office uh, for them, I think the, way, the best way to put it is, it has become something they consider to be their duty. So you might think about this and you say, well, I don't see it as my duty right now. Uh, and Nor should you. you, just, you know, maybe you just learned about it. Uh, but over time, it becomes this almost essential part of your life. It trains us to pray regularly, to pray well. Question 250, how is the daily office observed? The daily office is primarily designed for corporate prayer. It may also be used by individuals or families in public or in private, in whole or in part. The daily office is very, very, very uh, flexible in this way. However, some people have often said, well, the daily office used to be um, uh, written in the third person, and I'm praying it alone, how do I do that? And my answer is, you pray it in the third person, why? Because you're the, it's corporate worship whether you do it alone or with others. It is designed for corporate prayer. And when you pray the office, you pray as a member of a body, and therefore the pronouns you use are we, not I. And the offices reflect that. And so it can be prayed in private, it can be prayed by an individual, it can be prayed in public as well, but it, it is always with the sense of corporate prayer. Last question 251. Why do we pray the daily office? We pray the daily office because by it we learn the scriptures. This is so important. Uh, you know, we, we'd spoken earlier in catechesis about how uh, we want to read, mark, learn, and hear, read, mark, learn, and then read, digest the scriptures. Um, that fourth phrase in that, or the fourth word in that phrase, learner, means that we become a people who really and truly know scripture, almost that we speak the language of scripture. And in order to do this, we have to read it in a, in a, in a coherent, ordered, uh, you might even use this word, orchestrated way. Um, and the daily office provides us with that. It provides us with a way that is not too difficult, um, and nothing burdensome, uh, but is actually something that people can do, that ordinary people can do. Um, I've, I've been hard-pressed to find anyone who can't find 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening to pray. Um, and now you have multiple ways of doing that. Let's say your commute is 20 minutes in the day. Well, you can you can actually today you can turn on various podcasts of morning and evening prayer. Um, you can have morning prayer read to you. I mean, I even know that uh, if you have the Alexa thing, you can just say, uh, "Hey Alexa, start daily prayer," and Alexa will start morning prayer for you. 
Um, so I, I'm not sure. I'm not on board with that, but but it is a possibility. And so uh, we're kind of at a point where technologically there's just no excuse, right? You can you can get daily office apps on your phone, and you can follow it that way. Uh, it's an amazing thing. But what you do when you enter into this is you join with the church, not just as an individual. But you join the church, and this is expressive of what we would use the word for uh, ecclesiology. It's expressive of what we believe about the church, or what we know about the church. Um, and it and it and it says that that church prays as a part of the Lord Jesus Christ's body, mystically joined together at the right hand of the Father. That's where we are when we enter into these prayers. Um, and so it's through this that we mark our days with the beginning ending with prayer and praise and thanksgiving to God, and it is through that that we sanctify the time in which we live. Um, this is something that is so often lost uh, on many people, but um, the reality of it is that, that most people see the world in a, in a strange um, division between sacred and secular, both that which accords to the age and that which accords uh, to God, maybe, or to the holy. And for Christians, uh, these two come together in a wonderful way, we might call it a sacramental way. And uh, that therefore becomes important and, and actually essential to sanctify the time in which we live. But what we can say about this is that uh, our worship, uh, even if it's just twice a day, morning and evening, actually goes a long way in sanctifying the time that we live in. It gives us an opportunity to uh, to offer the day to God at the beginning, and also thank him for the day that has passed at the end. But it's also, and I think this is, this is very important, it's a way to actually turn our daily labors, our studies, our, uh, our work into something that is sacred, into something that is done not just for our neighbor, or not just for ourselves, but done truly for God. Uh, the monastic uh, tradition has always understood that uh, that prayer and work, as uh, as Benedict puts it, um, ora et labora go together. They're they're actually two parts of the same work, uh, and so we enter into that and and knowingly and conscientiously or consciously uh, offer all the work of our days to God through this daily office. Uh, I want to commend this to you because for many people uh, in the evangelical tradition, they've had uh, maybe a practice of with what some people call quiet times or uh, times for reading scripture. And, uh, and you know, part of this is just sort of this word of, well, this is something you should be doing, right? It's kind of like, you know, go do it, go have that time. Uh, but there's never much guidance given to it. And so for many people, it's like, well, they start, and they really just don't know what to do. And I've even known many people through the years who, who have been uh, really wonderful Christian people, but they are at a loss for what to do during these times that should be set aside for prayer. They know they should be praying daily for something like half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the evening, but they don't know what they should be praying. And so uh, the daily office is a great help in this, and something I want to commend to you, uh, because it gives you some structure. Uh, it's not all structured. I mean, my wife and I, when we pray morning prayer, we take time to uh, to do intercessions in the midst of that, to pray for each other, and to pray for our family, and to pray for the people around us, and to pray for those that are sick, Pray for those that are suffering, pray for those that are in need. Um, but, but at the end of the day, we really do need that structure. Otherwise, we sit there and say, well, what do you want to do today, honey? And I don't know. <laughs> Let's, how about we do this? You know? 
no, we, we, we're doing this. And the other really wonderful blessing about it is that uh, I'll very often be talking to somebody in the parish and, and they'll say, did you catch that reading in the daily office last week? And I say, yes, wasn't that amazing? And you know, got me thinking about this or that or another thing. And, and it's just a wonderful gift because we're, what we're doing, we do together as one body. That is what is part of the church's uh, life of corporate worship and it's what I want to commend to you through the daily office, but also through uh, the liturgies, all the liturgies of the prayer book.